0: What's that plant? It's a Your gardener gave it to me. You're very popular. I just try to be
1: myself. Whenever I try to be myself, people don't seem to like me very much.
0: Confidential church documents were allegedly leaked to the press. Alleging
2: corruption. And misconduct among the clergy.
0: I hope this business is not too distressing. Does a shepherd run away with the wolves here? and moving in directions I can no longer condone. I've struggled to do what must be done, but I've lost. Hopes can't resign. If you do this, you will damage the papacy forever.
1: I can no longer sit on the chair of St. Peter. You're, You're mistaken. You are... Silence! I cannot play this role anymore. There's a saying. God always corrects one pop by presenting the world with another pop I should
0: I'd like to see my correction. Reform needs a politician. The most important qualification for any leader is not wanting to be leader. It's not me who needs to be satisfied. It's 1.2 billion believers. You're the right person. Church needs to change and you could be that change. It could never be me
2: the grand doors have slammed shut
0: and will remain so till the next pope has been chosen from that balcony up there nothing is static in nature not even god where should we find him if he's always moving on the journey
1: oh perhaps we'll find god over there on the journey i'll introduce you to him Just remember that you are not God, you're only human.
2: Oh yeah, okay. (laughs) So friends, welcome uh, to the Tapestry Church. If we have yet to meet, my name is Michael Yang. I'm the pastor here at Tap Nights, and a warm welcome to all of you, especially if you're joining us for the first time to our Oscar weekend. And so here at the Tap, we value creativity and engaging with culture uh, as followers of Jesus. And so that's one of the reasons why we have a night like this, an Oscar weekend. And so tonight, at least at Tap Nights, we're gonna be tangoing with the two popes. And their two leads, uh, the lead actors, they're both nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor categories, so they're crushing it in this movie. And so together, we're going to explore the goodness, truth, and beauty that we find here and how it points to the person and way of Jesus in this film and also in a Bible passage as well, all right? But first, a raise of hands. Uh, Who here has seen The Two Popes? Who did their homework? Okay, okay, just helpful to see like where we're at and who's in the room. Um, so for those who haven't seen it, I will be spoiling a little bit of it for you, but it's not really a plot-driven film, but we will be looking at some juicy bits though, okay? Now, uh, just another raise of hands, a lot of polls tonight. Uh, who here has been to the Vatican by any chance? Okay, a little less than half, yeah? Okay. so. Uh, My wife, uh, Christy, and myself, uh, two summers ago, we got to go to Roma, and uh, we had to hit up the Vatican because we love history and tradition of the church and art and also pizza. Um, And while we were there at the Vatican, we snagged this photo. Let me show it to you. Okay? Now, um, maybe some of you have seen this before. I've shared this before. But if you can't tell what this is, because the writing is kind of small, this... This is a list of all the popes that have ever served throughout history and the date of their deaths. And it's hard to tell, but the very first name on that list is Peter. Yeah. Can you imagine tracing your job back to the Apostle Peter? Huh? There's a lot of shoes to fill there. Now, do you know what's one of my favorite things about, the, about this list, though? Is that they leave all that room. <laughs> the church is like, hey, you know, we're going to be around for a while. That's like another 500 years to put the name of dead popes on. <laughs> now, what's interesting is the last name on the list, it reads Ionus Paulus II, 2005. And that's what kicks off the movie, the death of John Paul II, right? And so here's an actual photo of the funeral of JP II, and it's just stunning, right? Like, it's such a different world to me, what's going on here. So upon his death, the cardinals of the Catholic Church, so all the top-tier leaders of the Catholic Church, they flock to the Vatican, like Vancouverites, to Lululemon, and um, Altogether, there's like about 115 of them, these cardinals, from all over the world, and they gather to elect a new pope. So in 2005, it was Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger from Germany who would become Pope Benedict XVI. And at that same papal enclave, there's actually also another cardinal from Argentina named Jorge Borgoglio, who got the second most votes to be pope and he would later become pope francis. Now, here's an actual photo side by side of the real pope francis and pope benedict, so the OG popes, along with uh, Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price, right? You can tell who is who, right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I what I love about this movie, and I actually what the, I think lends to the power of it is how similar these men actually look, huh? Especially Jonathan Price and Pope Francis, right? And so, uh, hopefully, all this just gives you a little context and framework for the historical background of what's about to go down. Now, I do want to have a few disclaimers before we get into the heart of the sermon. Now, it's really important to remember that this movie, this movie is conjecture, because we don't know if these conversations actually took place, and surely, surely not like the way you see it in the movie. The point, therefore, is not the historical accuracy of the movie per se, but I would argue the power of the movie is like the power of a story, of a parable, if you will. <laughs> you could easily call this the parable of the two popes because they each represent these two larger bodies of thought. Do you know what I mean? Right? Ho- hopefully that will make more sense as we go along. And another disclaimer is this. The movie does not excuse or ignore the Catholic Church's scandals or abuses, but neither does it focus on those abuses. It's not the emphasis of the movie. Now, I know some of us personally have some baggage and might have been hurt by the Catholic Church, and we're all appalled at the abuses and scandals. I acknowledge that. But, but tonight, I, I want to take on a posture that the movie takes and also what I think the scriptures take when it comes to looking at the people of God, which is a hopeful view, but not grounded in the goodness and mercy and infallibility of people, but in the goodness, mercy, and infallibility of our God. So with that in mind, let's get to Popin. Okay? Okay. Let's get a popin' in here. Okay, so it's important to know that a foundational passage for the Catholic Church comes from Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus, at one point, he turns to one of his disciples, his apprentices, and he says this, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So, Peter is this central figure of the church, right? Especially the Roman Catholic Church, right? We talked about it. He's the first pope according to tradition. Now, the name Peter, if you're not familiar, you can translate it as rock, or it's kind of more like a nickname, like Rocky. You know, it's a very solid nickname. And so, I think it's only fitting in our time tonight, as we talk about this, to look at the scriptures when it connects to Peter. So we're going to actually look at a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote. And that's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. If you want to flip there in your Bibles, you can. Uh, we, we won't read the whole passage, but just some key parts of it. And so 1 Peter 2. And as I read this passage, I want you to try and start to connect what you know about the movie to what Peter writes, if you've seen it. So church, hear a reading from the story that we belong to, 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scriptures it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. And so all together with this movie and this scripture passage, this is what we're going to look at, what we're going to explore tonight. I want to look at the questions, who is the church? And who and what are we called to be? And I would suggest... Based on this passage and the movie, I think we're called to be living stones, and, and there's, we'll talk about the tension and the gift of being the church, being living stones, and I think we're also called to be a holy priesthood, mediators of mercy specifically, okay? So that's what we're going to look at. What does it mean to be living stones? What, the, what does it mean to be a holy priesthood? Comprende? Okay, that's where we're headed. So first, let's talk about living stones. And we're going to look at a few scenes near the beginning of the film. And and just a little bit of background before I show you some clips. Uh, In the movie now, it's 2012. So seven years after Pope John Paul II passed and Pope Benedict became Pope. It's 2012, and Bergoglio, he's thinking about resigning as a cardinal. But he needs Pope Benedict's uh, signature and confirmation because cardinals are in it for life. So he's summoned to Rome because he thinks the Pope is gonna talk to him directly about this personally. And so in a moment, we're gonna see their first uh, real meeting, their first real conversation they have in the garden of the beautiful summer residence of the Pope. And we can't look at the entirety of their conversation, but we'll just look at two brief snippets, okay? So let's go.
0: Can one ever live simply enough? on uh, married priests? I was misquoted. I said celibacy can be a blessing, it can also be a curse. Non-homosexuality? All I said was... No doubt misquoted again. (sighs) Taken out of context.
1: Ah. But might I suggest you try telling the newspapers the opposite of what you think? Uh, Your chances of being quoted correctly might therefore improve. (laughs) Nothing. You openly give sacraments to those who are out of communion. To the divorced,
0: for instance. I believe that giving communion is not a reward for the virtuous, it is food for the starving. Ah.
1: So what matters is what you believe, but not what the church has taught for hundreds of
0: years. No, no, no. Mark, chapter two, verse 17. I came to call sinners, as the church has taught for thousands of years. If we do not draw a line. Or build walls to separate. You talk about walls as if they're bad things. A house is built of walls. Strong walls. Did Jesus build walls? His face is a face of mercy. The bigger the sinner, the warmer the welcome. Mercy is the dynamite that blows down walls. Yeah.
1: You have an answer for everything, don't you? Don't stop now. Keep... Have to walk. Keep... Let's go. Don't stop now. You're clever, far too clever. A church that marries the spirit of the age.
0: Yes, yes, we'll be widowed in the next. Yeah. I know, I know. Only father... When you were leader of the Jesuits in Argentina, you had all the books on Marxism removed from the library. And I made seminarians, wear cassocks all day, even when they were working in the vegetable garden. And I called civil marriage for homosexuals the devil's plan. you not unlike me. No. I'd change it. Now you compromised. No, no compromise, No. I change it. Cop- it's a different thing.
1: <sighs> huh? Some of it changes compromise.
2: Yeah. Those are some two sassy old religious men, huh? When I grow up, I want to be like them. <laughs> okay, so this whole scene, it's like 10 minutes long. And there are more delicious nuggets in there than in your nearest McDonald's. It's so good. But we can't touch on all of that. So, but, but can you feel the tension? Yeah? Like, these guys competing visions of who the church is and what the church should be, this tension of living this ancient faith in the modern world. You know, the screenwriter for the film, Anthony McCartan, he said he based his script on a mound of research uh, from secondary sources, from Vatican archives and interviews, and then he summed it up, what he thinks the film is about, by saying this, or a big part of it. He says, the potential I sensed in this story was a debate, an almost Talmudic disputation between a progressive and a conservative. It spoke to the broader conversation raging in society at present. Uh, So uh, Talmudic, just to explain, uh, it refers to the Talmud, which is this uh, ancient text, a central text for the Jewish people. It's a collection of teachings and disputations between rabbis over hundreds of years. So There is this kind of back and forth going on. There's this give and take dimension that I think captures what's happening here with the two popes. And I think we're actually more familiar with this than we know. Because right now uh, at the tap, we're going through the Gospel of Luke. And um, as you read through Luke, actually as you read through any of the four gospel accounts of Jesus, you see Jesus engaging in precisely these kind of conversations right, with the religious leaders of his day there is this back and forth going on. Now, what I want to highlight for us, what I want us to notice is actually the nuance, what's actually really happening here, at least for me. I think it's too simple and boring to frame it as grace versus law or even conservative versus progressive because notice both Benedict and Francis, they appeal and they actually draw from the tradition Right? Benedict speaks about church history and its uh, history of administering the sacraments. But then Francis appeals to Jesus and the scriptures about how to actually do that. See, both are actually quoting tradition, just different parts. You see, they're both inheritors and interpreters of it. All of us, we are inheritors and interpreters of this living tradition. Now, how does this connect with our passage in 1st Peter? What does it reveal about being the church? Uh, well, let's actually go and look at 1st Peter, the first verse, before we come back to the film. Notice what Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So a little bit of context about Peter. He's writing to a number of churches spread across Asia Minor, which is roughly like parts of present-day Turkey. So he's writing, therefore, to a diverse group of people. And he says, what connects you, what connects the church is Jesus. But he uses strange language to talk about Jesus, right? He, he calls Jesus the living stone. Now, imagine for a second what a living stone looks like right? Someone just shrugged their shoulders. Like, yeah, what is a living stone? It's a strange phrase. So some scholars think this is, way, this is Peter's way of contrasting the living stone, Jesus, with the dead stone of the physical temple in Jerusalem. And you have to remember, the physical temple in Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish religion at the time, where people believed heaven and earth actually overlapped. That's where God dwelled. So in other words, Peter is saying, now as followers of Jesus, you no longer have to go to the temple in Jerusalem or to your local synagogue to draw close to God. You can actually draw close to God anywhere when you draw close to Jesus, right? Who is alive, a living person, a living temple. Jesus embodies God's glory and God's presence too. Are we tracking so far? Now notice he also calls the church, he calls Christians, living stones as well. Now, one way we could read that is, well, because we are the people of Jesus, we are the body of Christ, uh, we also embody God's presence and glory in some way here on earth, and and that's true and absolutely beautiful, a powerful reality. But as I was watching this film, it actually, I kind of came to see this passage in a different way. Because I think this film, it captures so well what's going on when these two popes come together. And here's what I mean. I would suggest Francis is like this living element, the living part of the living stone. You see, he embodies movement, change, progress. And Benedict, he's like the stone portion in that he embodies tradition, right? And constancy and conservatism. Now, what's interesting is that we actually need both. You see, without the stone, without Benedict's emphasis on tradition, holding on to the things that have provided something solid, that have provided comfort and solace for people, then there's no house. Then there are no walls. Now, a house needs walls. The church needs walls in order to be a sanctuary and a home. And many of you know this. Many of you have tasted this and continue to follow Jesus because of this. And yet, without Francis' emphasis on movement and change and progress, the church becomes out of touch, right? No longer in the world, no longer able to deal adequately with uh, the changing times and complex contexts, and no longer able to bless the world as best as we can. And so sometimes we shut ourselves behind these walls, uh, literally and figuratively. And Francis says, right, God's mercy must blow it wide open for our sake and for the sake of the world. And many of us follow Jesus because we have tasted this. We have tasted this change and dynamism. Does that make sense so far? So I actually think this is really important because too often when we evaluate people, especially in the church, who hold different theologies and approaches, when we evaluate them, we, we tend to ask, "Who? which of these is faithful? Who is right here? We make it always either or. But what if another question is, in what ways, in what ways is each person being faithful? In what ways is each person right? What if we made it both and? I don't think it always has to be either or. I think an action can be both and. But the problem is, it's not easy. And there's no way that can happen without Christ and the Holy Spirit holding it all together. Because indeed, my friends, great is the mystery of faith. And great is the tension of being the church. (laughs) There's no simple formula to live this out, friends. But what does it require of us? I think it means like the two popes, we actually have to engage in real dialogue. And actually, I think that's why this movie has such resonance in our culture, right? Whether people are Christians or not, they're flocking to this movie because, because genuine dialogue is like disintegrating in our culture, huh? <laughs> So when you see people actually talking, even if it's in a film, it actually pulls people in, right? Real dialogue means being quick to listen and slow to label, right? It means being quick to listen and slow to label. So I think our world is starving for it. And I think the church, with our own vast diversity, but also our deep unity, we can be a testimony to real dialogue, to unity and diversity being held together. I think it's possible, and I think it's good. I think we can actually model that with the help of Christ to the world. Yeah? Does that make sense? So these ideas of, like, living stones, Francis and Benedict coming together, I think there's some value and something to be learned there. So uh, that's looking at our first sort of big theme, living stones. I kind of want to shift gears now to talk a bit about, well, what about that holy priesthood thing, huh? So we looked at these first couple of scenes at the beginning of the film. Now we're going to shift to look at two different scenes. Um, and they happen quite a bit later, and they're happening in the Sistine Chapel. Um, and Francis and Benedict, they're both confessing their sins to one another, and they share their hesitations and why they think they're unworthy to lead God's church. And so we see how they respond to one another in spite of all this. Let's take a look.
0: Every vegetable I chopped, every eviction we stopped, every, every case we won, I saw as some kind of penance. Yeah. <laughs> hmm.
1: I'm just going to tell you one little thing. We all suffer from spiritual pride. We all do. You must remember that... Uh, You are not God. In God we move and live and have our being. We live in God, but we are not of it. You're only human. But, there he is. Human. Yeah. So, if you'll allow me, My son, you must believe in the mercy that you preach. Ego te absolvo in omni pati spiritu sancti. Since I was a child, as a boy, I always felt his presence with me, at my side. For my entire life, I have been alone, but never lonely, until now. (sighs) I'm so sorry. Yeah. But now I can hear his voice, these last two days, I've heard his voice again. I'm glad. Yes. And the voice is the last one I expected to hear him speak with. It was your voice. No. Yeah. I think perhaps I could not hear him, not because he was withdrawing from me, but because he was saying, Go, my faithful servant.
0: God the Father of mercies has sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. May God grant you his pardon and peace and I absolve you of your sins. I remind you that truth may be vital but without love it is unbearable. Caritat in Veritat, your book In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You
1: have lifted a great burden from my shoulders. You have placed in
0: everyone of mine.
2: Ah. Yeah, I love those two scenes, especially when they're put back to back. Because in a way, they're mirrors of each other. These two people mirror mercy to each other. Because do you notice Benedict says to Francis at one point, you must believe in the mercy that you preach. So Benedict is encouraging Francis with the very marks of Francis's ministry, mercy. And then in the second scene, we see the flip side. Francis encourages Benedict with Benedict's own words from his book, his own values, truth. Without love is unbearable. <laughs> so there's a lot going on in those scenes, but to me, I actually think those are prime examples of what I would call priestly care. <laughs> they hear one another's confessions, and then they become channels of God's grace to one another, right? They're examples of what I think priests look like in such a, like, Hollywood film. <laughs> now, what does the first pope, what does Peter have to say about priesthood? All right, so let's actually jump back to Peter and just take a look, too. Uh, You notice in uh, verses 5, 9, and 10, he says, Hey, you are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So a few questions now for us as we explore a holy priesthood. First of all, who is a priest (laughs) Maybe we don't know or aren't familiar with that language. And second, what does a priest actually do, (laughs) at least in this context, right? Now, uh, Scott McKnight, a wonderful Bible scholar, he summarizes who a priest is, at least in the biblical context. So he writes this. He says, "Uh, the priests were from special families among the nation of Israel who served God by mediating between the people and God. But to be a priest was a privilege beyond comparison because it involved entry into the special courts and holy places of the temple in order to take human concerns before God and apply God's forgiveness. Okay, there's a lot going on in there, but I think two big things is uh, mediators, right A priest is a sort of mediator caught between God and people, and a big part of their job is to apply. God's mercy, to bring uh, humans' concerns to God and apply God's mercy. And there's, of course, a rich uh, theology and tradition about priesthood, but actually I think the movie kind of shows us a few interesting things, and I want to highlight sort of an image we can grab from there, especially through these popes, about what it means to be a priest. And to do that, we actually have to first begin with the Latin word for priest, which is pontifex. Let me hear you say pontifex. You can literally translate it as bridge builder or bridge maker because in the Latin, when it first came up, it was sort of this idea they're, they're between two bridges or two sides, the human and the divine. Okay, so that was an understanding of a priest. Now, um, sometimes you'll actually hear the Pope referred to as the pontiff. They even use that term, uh, I think, once in that film. Now, uh, this seems like a tangent, but I promise it's not. Um, <laughs> Anybody here follow the Pope on Twitter by any chance? Nobody. Okay, I guess we're not really a Twitter community. That's totally fine, okay? But here's I'm on Twitter, and it's toxic for my soul, so you shouldn't be on there. But here is his actual uh, Twitter page, a screenshot of it I took. Uh, Do you see his Twitter handle? If you can read it, it says, at Pontifex. So that just... Just interesting, right? And uh, for, your, you know, for your own knowledge, the Holy Father has been on Twitter since February uh, 2012. And he's pretty lit, y'all. You should follow him. He's got some pretty cool things. Now, um, he has 18.1 million followers, which is quite a lot, right? I mean, can you imagine 18.1 million people following you, at least on Twitter? Uh, so to put that in some context or perspective, because I was trying to think, okay, we Protestants don't have a pope. So who could I pick? So I picked Rick Warren. I don't know why. I mean, I don't read his stuff, but he seems like a big deal to people. So I looked it up. Rick Warren has 2.3 million followers okay, on Twitter, which is a lot, but not 18.1 million, huh? But then again, to put all of that in context, I looked at Justin Bieber. And uh, as of this week, Mr. Bieber has 109 million followers followers, or if you will, believers <laughs> on Twitter. And I don't know what that says about our culture, but it's just a fact that I'm going to throw out there, okay? So um, anyway, I, <laughs> I like the idea of a priest uh, being a pontifex, a bridge builder, a mediator. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor, who is an Episcopal, Episcopal priest, um, She writes this in her memoir, and it's one of my favorite lines anywhere. So Barbara Brown Taylor, she says this. "Uh, In my lexicon, at least, a priest is someone willing to stand between a God and a people who are longing for one another's love, turning back and forth between them with no hope of tending either as well as each deserves. Oh, come on now. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. Being a pastor is hard. <laughs> um, or a priest, because that's what I am as well. And that's why I really resonate with Barbara Brown Taylor, especially that line with no hope of tending either as well as each deserves. Huh? We could probably say that about other occupations where we're caught between two sides too, right? But the beauty is that there's actually immense mercy and grace in all of this. Because I'm not the only mediator, and I'm not even the most important one. Christ, Jesus, will always, first and foremost, be our high priest, our ultimate mediator, without equal. The New Testament letter to the Hebrews talks beautifully about that. But not only myself and Christ, all of you are priests as well you each and all together are called to be priests offering God's mercy to others that that's what peter's getting at in his passage but he's really just riffing on what moses said to the people of israel in exodus 19 and, and so the church we've traditionally called this the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers maybe you've heard that before Now, over the centuries, for various reasons, this has either been lost or not emphasized. Uh, So, Tish Harrison Warren, an Anglican priest, I love how she says, you know, in the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, this, which helped form us, the Protestant church, this idea was partly captured again and actually emphasized and highlighted, right? She says, the Reformation toppled a vocational hierarchy that had placed monks, nuns, priests, and I would add popes at the top, and everyone else below. The reformers taught that a farmer may worship God by being a good farmer, and that a parent changing diapers could be as near to Jesus as the pope. This was a scandal. So all of you who had worked this week... All of you who changed diapers this week, all of you who studied for your midterms, hopefully, (laughs) did whatever you were doing in your everyday life, you have been worshiping God. You have been serving God as a priest. You are as near to Jesus as any pastor or president of a seminary or a pope. Whatever the case, you are doing holy work. The challenge is to grow in our awareness, intentionality, and dependence on Christ for all of this. Does all that make sense? Are you smelling the incense that I'm burning? Yeah? Okay, good. So here's the thing. Although today I decided to wear my clerical clothes right? As a sign of my ordination as a minister to this congregation, here's the truth. I'm not the only ordained person in this room. And yes, the Reverend Al Chu is also in the house, okay? But okay, besides, besides Al and I, we're not the only ordained people in this room. You see, the theologian Karl Barth said, all Christians, every Christian is ordained by virtue of their baptism, You each and all together have been ordained to worship the Lord, to enjoy and share God's presence, to be a mediator, to pass on God's mercies, right? You know, somebody in my small group joked that I should have gone all Oprah on you and, like, put one of these collars underneath your seats. Like, you get an ordination and you get an ordination and you get an ordination. But I didn't do that. because these are hard to find and expensive, and I think the CRC would not like me doing that. Um, But also because the waters of baptism already took care of that. Do you see that? That is your calling. You are ordained. And And the truth is, just like Francis and just like Benedict, we are probably more priestly than we imagine, right? We're already doing this. So often, we mediate mercy all the time. Anytime you're caught between people in your family, right? Between your parents, your siblings, your kids, you're trying to bring mercy and peace there, right? In our workplaces, in our classrooms, between different cultures and communities and places in our city, anywhere you are building bridges, you are a priest. You are the priesthood. And so, friends, what are some tangible ways to do this? Like, I kind of get it. I don't know what you mean. I kind of know what you mean. I just want to highlight two ways that we can do this. And you're probably already doing this. So really quick, two ways to be a priest, listening and prayer. <laughs> listening and prayer, right? When we, are a, when we engage in listening and praying, we are being priestly. And, and what I mean by that is, did you notice in the movie how much listening there is? There's a lot of talking, but there's also a lot of listening between the two popes, but really, it was a huge part. Hearing confessions and listening to people was a huge part of Francis's formation into becoming who he is. And listening is no small deal, friends. The pastor and theologian, David Augsburger, he says this. He says, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Just think about that for a moment. Think about your own experiences of genuinely being heard. If you're like me, you have room to grow in this area of listening and and really loving, huh? Huh? So what if this week we all committed to becoming better listeners, even just a little bit, which means slowing down, looking people in the eye as they're talking, right? It means asking more questions than trying to get our own opinion or statement across. It means listening to understand and not listening to respond. There's power in listening. The second thing is praying, right? So after the popes listen to each other, you see them praying for one another, right? They assure each other of God's forgiveness and mercy. So every time I think we pray for another person, we're being priestly. And I can't tell you how many times just this week alone, this week alone, I've witnessed and participated in people praying for one another or praying on behalf of one another for somebody else, right? Like through WhatsApp, (laughs) over coffee or bubble tea, right out there in the foyer, here in the sanctuary before service, right, at dinner tables and other kinds of tables in small groups and so much more. This, what I'm trying to say is this is one of my favorite things about being the church. It's when we pray for one another. And it almost seems like so common, we do it all the time but I love it when we pray for one another and we, when we pray for the world because what a holy thing it is to entrust yourself to somebody for prayer. And what a sacred honor it is to actually pray for them. That's what we're called to do. So keep doing it, church. Keep going. And lastly, how can we do this? Why can we do this? Because the truth is, we know that Jesus is our foundation. He is that rock, that cornerstone, right? He laid himself down and died on the cross so that everything we do is secure in him. Jesus paid it all, as we sang. And also, Jesus is the high priest, the mediator. We model everything we do after him because there's no one like him. He's been doing this He's the only one who could truly do this. He's 100% human, 100% divine, and we model ourselves after his ministry. So friends, I want to close with our time together by praying together. So specifically, I want to pray a prayer that's been attributed to Pope Francis. And um, Pope Fra- oh sorry, not Pope Francis, St. Francis. <laughs> and St. Francis is the medieval saint that Pope Francis models himself after, and has actually named himself after. So I invite you now, if you're willing and able, to now stand, and we're going to pray this aloud together in one voice. So church, let us pray. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Amen, church.